Good morning. Thank you all so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Um, Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 21. will be our scripture reading for the sermon this morning. Um, Exodus chapter 21. And this morning I've been asked to speak about, honestly, basically my least favorite subject to speak upon, but also one of the most necessary for our day. And that is the issue of abortion um, in our nation today. And this morning, I want to bring a message to you regarding what God has to say about the issue. I want this message to be um, equipping to you to answer um, objections that people who are are in favor of abortion might bring, as well as... um, encourage you with the solution to abortion and also perhaps challenge you on the issue of abortion and what we are to think of it from a biblical Christian worldview. And that's one of the issues that we'll be talking about this morning. So as we uh, turn to Exodus 21, we're going to read verses 22, 22 through 25 will be our scripture reading for this morning. So Exodus 21, 22 to 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. That's where we'll end the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us the gospel of Christ. He has come to save his people from their sins. We thank you that he lived a perfect life of righteousness on behalf of his people, that he died taking the punishment on the cross on behalf of his people, that he was buried and that he rose again on behalf of his people. We thank you for eternal life in him and in him alone received by putting our trust in him and in him alone. We thank you for the gospel. We also thank you for your law and revealing your will to us. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And we thank you for giving us your law as the standard of how we may live to please you out of gratitude and thankfulness to you for saving us by your precious free gift of the gospel. I pray that you'll bless our understanding as we discuss this very important issue today, the issue of the murder of unborn children. We thank you for uh, giving us uh, a new heart that love you and love your word and love your law so that we are not um, taking part in these things, but instead exposing these unfruitful works of darkness. We praise you for that and we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as I said, the issue of abortion is probably one of the least favorite things for me to discuss as it's horrendous, but also, again, one of the most necessary things to speak about in our day um, because of the the highly volatile issue that it is. Um, As you probably know, if you keep up with um, current events and things like that. It is continuously an issue of contention in this nation, the abortion debate, right? People are always discussing, you know, should people have these quote-unquote rights to abortion or should it be outlawed? Should we have certain types of laws and things like that are always being debated? And it's one of the things that's being debated recently, and people are trying to bring things to the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing we need to understand about abortion is we need to understand it from a biblical worldview, from a Christian worldview. What What's at stake here? What are the issues of abortion that we're dealing with, right? So as Christians, Jesus said this in in John chapter 7, 24. 
He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, or judge with a righteous judgment. We are to make judgments, but we're meant to make judgments that are righteous, judgments that are right, that are according to the mind of God revealed in his word. We are to make judgments about things that are consistent with what God has said about those things. So this morning, we want to make sure that our minds are in line with what God has said about the issue of abortion. Ephesians 5.11 says this, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we're supposed to expose these things as evil, these things that are unfruitful works of darkness. We don't take part in them, we expose them for what they are using the word of God. So there's, there's a few key questions that we need to ask ourselves and need to be able to answer when it comes to the issue of abortion. What is abortion? That's a key, crucial question. Secondly, what are the unborn? And thirdly, what is murder? And those are the questions that we seek to answer this morning. So first, from a Christian biblical worldview, and I'll support this as we go through the sermon, abortion is the murder or the intentional killing of preborn human beings. It's the murder of unborn children, children who are still in the womb. That's what abortion is. And for, and for us to take that position is very important because if abortion is not murder, then we really don't need to care about it, do we? I would, if abortion is not murder, I wouldn't oppose it. I'd oppose it as much as I oppose getting a tooth pulled or getting your gallbladder taken out. I wouldn't oppose it at all. But if abortion is murder, well, then we are obligated to oppose it. And that's the key issue that we're, gonna, we're facing here with the abortion issue. If abortion is murder, then we must expose it as such and oppose it. Now, there are multiple methodologies today of how people do abortions. There's surgical uh, methods where, where there's one example is called vacuum aspiration, where they essentially um, break up the baby into parts and suck the parts out with a, a strong vacuum. That is one method. There's also medical or chemical abortions. Uh, maybe you've heard of the abortion pill. This is when mothers take some of these particular drugs and it intentionally causes miscarriage. This is, this, this is done when they're in the early stages of pregnancy. So what we have here again is what is the issue of abortion? How are we supposed to view it from a biblical worldview? Well, our, our starting point must be this. We must start with the word of God. A anti-abortion position is rooted in a Christian worldview and the Christian worldview is rooted in God's word. We have to start there. There's no neutrality when it comes to worldviews. If you're a Christian, you stand decidedly on the side of Christ and his word. If you're not a Christian, you stand decidedly opposed to Christ and his word. There is no neutrality when it comes to worldviews. So opposing abortion, which is the biblical position, must be done with the foundation of God's word. We have to have a reason to oppose abortion. Why do we oppose murder? We don't oppose murder because we feel like it's wrong. We oppose murder because God says it is wrong. That's an objective standard to appeal to. We don't base our feelings because the opposite position will say, well, I feel that abortion's okay. And we can go back and forth about our feelings all day long. What matters is what has God said? And that's what I want to demonstrate this morning. God has said that murder, of course, is evil. And then abortion being a form of murder is also evil. So we say murdering babies is wrong. Abortion is murdering babies. How do we know that? How do we know that it's wrong to murder babies? It sounds like a basic question, but we need to have the answer. God's word says so. 
We need to be able to give a reason, a sound reason. So God has clearly laid out in his word his opposition to abortion. He's laid it out in the Bible. He calls abortion murder and is therefore it's evil. So we have two key questions that the Bible answers for us to help us address this issue. What are the unborn and what is murder? Those are the two key questions that relate to the abortion issue. What are the unborn and what is murder? We need to be able to answer those two questions and we can answer them. We we have a foundation for opposing abortion. So first, what are the unborn? What, what is inside a pregnant woman's uterus? What is there? What is it? <clears throat> we have a basic argument here. That since God commands that you shall not murder, sixth commandment, we say, secondly, the unborn are people, so therefore you cannot murder the people, those unborn people. We have to prove that premise that the unborn are indeed human beings that cannot be murdered. For example, God's word says this about the unborn. Psalm 139, verse 13. Psalm 139, 13. Psalmist says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, when you notice the continuity, he's talking about himself when he was, before he was born. He's talking about that person as if it's him, because it is him. He's saying, you formed my inward parts when I was in my mother's womb. When he was an unborn baby, he's still the same person that he is today as an adult. There's a continuity between the unborn and those who are born. They're the same person before they're born and after they're born. Right? When you were in your mother's womb, you're, you were, in fact, the same person that you are today. You're just, of course, much smaller. So the continuity is there in Psalm 139.13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 22.10, David says a similar thing. He says about to God, he says, On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Okay, From my mother's womb. You have been my God. That continuity of that David was the same person before he was born and after he was born. He talks about his mother's womb. When he was in there, it was still David who was in there, in his mother's womb. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. There's a parallelism here. In the first line, it says, children are a heritage from the Lord. And then the second line saying something in different words, but essentially the same thing. And it says, the fruit of the womb. So the parallelism between children and fruit of the womb, hey, they're the same thing. So what is the thing that's in the womb? Children, right? So children equals fruit of the womb. So therefore, the thing that is in the womb is what? A child, right? It's pretty obvious. There's many more. Let's look at another one. Luke 1.15. This is about being said about John the Baptist. It says, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, who can be, what, what kind of entity can be filled with the Holy Spirit? Human beings. Right? John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And of course, he remained John the Baptist, that same person, after he was born and went on and grew up and did his ministry. Romans 9, 10 to 12, regarding Jacob and Esau. Notice what it says about them. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had what? Conceived children. She conceived children. Conceived what? She conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. 
and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. You have this about the pre-born Jacob and Esau Esau, while they're still in their mother's womb. They're called children here, and there's election going on before they're even born. We have here the interaction in Luke uh, chapter 1 between the unborn John the Baptist and the unborn Jesus. In Luke 1, 39-45, hear this. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Amen. Right? And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord? Now, if you're a mother, what does that mean? You have a child. Now, Mary's first child was who? Jesus. Was he born yet? No. But Mary was still his mother while Jesus was still unborn. So those who are pregnant, the moment they become pregnant, are mothers of unborn or preborn children. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You see these things here? John the Baptist, unborn, John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, is rejoicing, leaping in the womb over the proximity of Jesus being in his mother Mary's womb. Right? We have two unborn babies here being referred to in Scripture as unborn babies. The text we read this morning, Exodus 21, we have legal rights in Scripture for both born children and unborn children. So in our text from this morning, we have legal rights for unborn children. Exodus 21, 22 to 25. I'll read it again. When men, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman. So the, the case is here. You have guys who are fighting each other, but there's a pregnant woman close by and they hit her. Okay. They don't mean to necessarily, but they hit her so that what comes out, her children come out. Cause that's of course what is in a pregnant woman's womb. Her children come out, but there's no harm then the one who hit her shall be fined. So even if there's no harm to the mother or the child, there's still a fine because of their their negligence in fighting near a pregnant woman. And the fine will be imposed by the woman's husband, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But then listen to this. But if there is harm to either the mother or the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In fact, in Scripture, this is the longest or most detailed instance of what's called the lex talionis, which is this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, the punishment needs to fit the crime. This is the longest iteration of it in Scripture. It it gives the most examples. You should pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, etc., Right? It applies to the unborn. If they fight and, the, and they hit a pregnant woman and their children are injured or killed, it's life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the civil justice that comes to it. But we also have it elsewhere in Scripture that if you kill unborn, or if you kill born babies, rather, there's also civil justice for that. For example, Leviticus 20, verse 2. Say the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel are of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, that is, they sacrifice to this false god, their children. They shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone them with stones. You see, the, the civil penalty for murdering babies, whether born or unborn, 
was the same. Okay? There is equal rights for born children and unborn children in God's law. So what we've seen so far, remember the question is, what are the unborn? Well, I think it's very clear, and there's other scriptures that we could multiply, but we've multiplied quite a few already, that the consistent scriptural data points to that the thing that's within the pregnant woman's womb is a child. And it's not very hard to see that. It's very, very basic. And scripturally, it's very easy to point to, to prove scripturally. God has said that unborn children indeed are children, and they have, in fact, even legal rights just like born ones do. So we have here, let me just give you a little summary before we move on to the next point. There's a good little acronym that helps us point out the inconsistencies of saying that the unborn are not babies. You all are probably familiar with phrases like this. Well, it's not a baby in there, it's just a clump of cells or things like that. It's not a baby, it's just um, you know something else. It's the woman's body, whatever, things like that. So we're trying to dispel that scripturally, showing that that's not the case at all. Um, When a woman is pregnant, she is a mother of a child, um, and that child is, is of course, distinct from the mother. The child is not the mother. The child is distinct from the mother. We have this acronym here that shows the inconsistency of showing that uh, unborn babies are not babies. People try to say that. We're going to show the inconsistency of that claim. The acronym is SLED, S-L-E-D. S-L-E-D. And those stand for this. The S stands for size. The size of a human being does not change whether or not the person actually is a human being. In other words, if you're six foot two, you're a human being. But if you're five foot two, you're still a human being. How big you are doesn't change what you are, right? So for the unborn baby, yes, they are, especially when it's early on. They're very, very small. Does that change what they are? No. They're just a smaller human being. When they grow and they become a little bit bigger and bigger, just like the rest of us have. What, what size you are does not change what you are. So saying, well, the baby's so small in there, it's not really a baby. That's arbitrary. I mean, there's not really a reason to say that. Somebody could simply say that about, well, look, I have a two-year-old. He's not as big as me, so he's not really a human either. See, such, such argumentation is reduced to absurdity. What size you are does not affect what you are. The L in SLED is level of development, similar to size, but they'll say, well, look, the baby is so not not developed very much at this point. So, you know, you can have an abortion because they're not very developed. Again, though, how developed you are does not affect what you are. A kindergartner is also less developed than me, isn't he? Yeah. That doesn't mean he's not a human being doesn't mean he's not protected under God's law. It doesn't mean you can murder a five-year-old simply because he's less developed than you or me. The E in SLED stands for environment. Where you are does not affect what you are. The baby's in the womb. The baby's out of the womb. Either way, there's still the same thing, a human baby. So where you are, whether in the womb or out of the womb, whether born or pre-born, doesn't affect what you are. And finally, dependency. They say, well, the the baby is dependent upon the mother, so it's not really human. Of course, you can see that that doesn't follow. Your dependency on someone else to live does not affect what you are, does it? Um, Newborn babies are still dependent upon their parents to live, aren't they? Their dependency is on their parents, yet they're still human beings. None of these things make you not a human being. How big you are, how developed you are, where where you are, your environment, or your dependency on someone else to live, none of those affect what you are. These are all, none of this changes the fact that the unborn are human beings. 
Okay, now that's, that's all we've shown. <clears throat> the unborn are human beings. So we've answered the question, what are the unborn? And for many people, they think, well, that must be enough. <clears throat> as long as we know that the unborn are human beings, then, of course, people, people think that that's all you need, that we can, the people will just naturally oppose abortion if they know it, that the unborn are children. But that's not the case. And I want to show that to you this morning as well. The second question we have to ask is, what is murder? <clears throat> what is murder? So we've demonstrated that the unborn are humans. We have to ask, what's, what's murder? How do we know whether something is good or evil? Just in general, how do we know if something is good or evil? Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, it all comes back to God's word. We don't say something is evil because we feel like it's evil. We go back to God's word. Now, God, as we know, if you know the Ten Commandments, has said, you shall not murder. He has said that murder is evil. <clears throat> Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Um, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 <clears throat> says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, murder, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who bears out lies, out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Hands that shed innocent blood are something that God hates. He says, you shall not murder. There are many other texts of scripture where murder is condemned, and I'm sure that you know those. <clears throat> what is murder, though? What is murder? We have to be particular how we define this, because God is. He actually makes distinctions. Murder is the unjust, intentional killing of a person by any method. Okay, Unjust killing unjust, intentional killing of any person by any method. <clears throat> Let me read this to you from Numbers 35. Notice how God makes a distinction between if it's, on if it's on purpose or if it's unintentional. He doesn't make a distinction. Numbers 35, 15 to 25. <clears throat> this is the laws about making cities of refuge where people who accidentally kill somebody else, they could flee for refuge. They could be safe because if you don't kill somebody on purpose, they weren't to be tried for murder. It says this, These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them. That anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So those who kill somebody not on purpose, it's an accident, they can go there. But then he says, but... If he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him. He shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He's a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death whom he meet, when he meets him. But then listen to this. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything at him without lying in wait, or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules, and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he has fled. 
See the distinction there? If somebody kills somebody on purpose, he says they're a murderer. But if it's on accident, they're not a murderer. So when I say that murder is the intentional killing of someone else, that's an important distinction that God makes here. If you don't do it on purpose, you're not a murderer. But if you do it on purpose, you are. <clears throat> another way, another instance that's not murder but involves taking of life, as, as we read in that text, and there are many others, the civil government bear, bears the power of the sword and can institute the death penalty. For example, Exodus 21, 12 to 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, he shall take him from my altar that he may die. So again, there's the distinction between intentional and unintentional killing. But if you murder somebody, God authorizes the civil government to execute the, uh, that murderer. So we have, that's not, execution is not murder if it's just. Um, unintentional killing is not murder. And then, of course, there can be um, killing in just wars and wars of, of self-defense. Um, you can lawfully kill um, combatants when you're in war. Exodus, or Deuteronomy 20 <clears throat> says that. Um, Essentially this, when you, I'll read the text, Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 15, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. So those, those soldiers that you're fighting against, you, if, it's a, if it's a just war, you can, you can kill people in just wars. And then finally, another way that you can take life without being a murderer is in self-defense. Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So somebody breaks into your house at night, and they're creeping around, and you strike them down so that they die. God says there's no, there's no guilt there for his death. In Nehemiah, perhaps you remember, when they were rebuilding the wall, they would, um, because their enemies tried to stop them from doing that, they held their swords in one hand and were building the wall with the other. They were ready to fight in self-defense if their enemies came upon them. There's many other examples. So murder is the intentional, unjust killing of another human being. There are places where within God's law, people can be killed, like I said, in just wars, for capital crimes, in self-defense. Um, so and um, it's important for us to remember, again, that it must be intentional and it must not be lawful. And these ways make these distinctions. So when it comes to abortion... What are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with murder or something else? Well, are they killing their babies on purpose? And are, and are these babies in any of these categories that uh, were brought up here? Well, first off, indeed they are killing their babies on purpose. That's exactly what abortion is. There's a distinction between abortion and miscarriage. Miscarriage is something that happens providentially. It's accidental. It's not on purpose. It's not intentional. And that happens. It's totally different than abortion. Abortion is when you go typically and pay somebody to kill your child, whether it's surgical or whether it's taking an abortion pill. You're going to somebody, a, a doctor, to give you some sort of method to kill the baby that you are pregnant with. So it's intentional. <clears throat> is it in a just war or for a capital crime or in self-defense? No. Your baby, of course, has not been outside the womb to commit any crimes worthy of the death penalty um, and is not involved in a just war 
nor is it in self-defense. So it doesn't fall in any of these categories. So is abortion wrong then? So since we have demonstrated that abortion, that the unborn in fact are human beings, and that abortion is the unjust intentional taking of the unborn human life, it therefore follows that abortion is murder. And God says you shall not murder the unborn of human beings, therefore God forbids the murder of the unborn. Now, we've established here, and this is a biblical case again for why abortion is evil, and I hope that answering those two questions is enlightening. What are the unborn? What is murder? And thinking about these issues. Now, for most of us, though, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? We kind of go through all this stuff and we say, well, yeah, I mean, no kidding. But it's important for us to know this biblically. But also, there's a reason why we have to answer both of those questions. As I mentioned earlier, many people who are in the, in the pro-life movement think that the issue, the reason that people have abortions is because they don't know that they're pregnant with a baby. Um, the fact of the matter is, that's just not true. Um, and I have many things. I'm going to read to you a section from an article, but there's many more examples that I have here. That it's oftentimes the case that the mothers self-consciously are fully aware that it's a baby, but they don't care. They think they have a right to kill the baby. They say, well, it's not really murder. I can do it. I can kill my baby. I want to read to you a section from an article. This article actually was published in 2013, but I have many other examples, and I'd be happy to share some with you later if if you're interested. But I'll read to you some sections from this article. This, This article was published in 2013. It's by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams. And the article is called this, So What If Abortion Ends Life? And the subtitle is, I believe that life starts at conception and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. Okay? This is vitally important that we understand this. I'm going to read some sections, but I want you to notice some things that she's saying here. She knows the unborn are human beings and she says what? So what? Okay? Listen to there's some excerpts from it. <clears throat> Now, this is from, I remember, a pro-abortion person, or pro-choice, as she would say, a pro-abortion person. She says this, quote, When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, that means they kind of get defensive and weird when people start talking about the unborn being a human life. We get cagey around the life question. It makes us illogically contradictory. She's saying, we we pro-abortion people, we get illogically contradictory when we start talking about life in the womb. She says, I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. See your point? And we would say, yeah, that's right. Sometimes they say it's a bunch of cells. Sometimes they call it a baby and their child. She's saying that doesn't make no sense. I, I agree with her. She's right. It doesn't make sense. She says, I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. It's a great point, isn't it? She's right. There's an inconsistency there. If it's not a baby, why are you sad that you had a miscarriage, right? But then when they have an abortion, when they want their child to not live, they're happy. When it's a miscarriage and they want their child, they're sad. She said, that doesn't make any sense. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was vastly different, true, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same. He's right. How you feel about the baby doesn't change what it is. 
she says fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't, they're not babies when you, when, you, uh, when you want them and not babies when you don't. She says they don't, only, they don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. And we're saying that's right, that's right, that's right. But remember the point of this article. This is a pro-abortion person. She, she goes on. <clears throat> Listen, here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about. Lesbie winds up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her always. You hear the argument? She's saying all life's not equal. The mother's life is more important. If she doesn't want the baby, too bad for the baby. The baby doesn't have, a, have this uh, autonomous will that it can do this, so the mother can force her will on the baby and say, I don't want the baby, I'm going to kill the baby. This is how she concludes her article. I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. Now, I bring this up, and like I said, I have many other examples that are more recent than this in 2013 of women saying very, very similar things in actually more crass ways than this. <clears throat> but I raise this for an important, I make an important point here. The issue is not ignorance with abortion. It's not, we don't know what the unborn are. That's not the issue, and it's really never been the issue. Um, you don't need ultrasounds to know what's in a pregnant woman's womb, do you? Mary and Elizabeth knew exactly what was in their womb, didn't they? The baby in my womb, the baby in your womb. It's not that hard, is it? Human beings have known this forever, that when a woman is pregnant, she's not pregnant with something other than a baby. Of course, she's pregnant with the baby. And those who, as this woman actually points out, those who um, try to argue that it's not a baby are vastly inconsistent with their terminology. Um, they'll sometimes call their, their babies babies and sometimes not. They'll call themselves mothers, but then sometimes not. Um, they can't have it both ways. There's that inconsistency there. But the thing is, it's really not about that. The issue here is the human heart and our sin. The question we had before us really is, why is it that people murder their babies? It's not the first time in human history this has happened. We're not seeing something new here in our country for the last 50 years where, where abortion has exploded and, and it's, uh, as, as this debate has gone on. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 21 to 23. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Why do people murder? Because they're murderers in their heart. Because we're sinners in our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who, could, who can understand it? We have an issue before us. It's the, the problem is not ignorance. The problem is we're evil. Human, human beings are evil. The problem is that we're sinners. 
The claim, oftentimes among the pro-life movement, is that if people only knew it was a baby, they would never have an abortion. So we need to have more ultrasounds. Problem is, ultrasounds don't change human hearts. And the fact of the matter is, it's not really the issue. The issue is not that they don't know it's a baby. As this woman who wrote that article illustrates for us, it's just that they don't care. And they'd rather have it their way than care about their children. People, we need to have a, a biblical view. People are very sinful. And that's exactly what, how God describes us over and over and over again. When somebody is not born again, somebody's still in their, dead in their trespasses and sins, they follow their father, the devil, Jesus said in John 8. They follow the, the course of this world. They follow their own sinful hearts. Paul says this in Titus 3.3, talking about a Christians before they were born again. This is how we are naturally. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's how we are by nature. And that includes people will, are so self-centered and hate others, even their own children, that they would, as the woman said, sacrifice the life of their child because that's worth it. It's a life worth sacrificing. Jesus said in John 8, 44, to unbelievers, to all non-Christians, he says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So ultimately, what we're dealing with, again, is sin. We end with sin, which kind of, I hope, helps us categorize this a little better than I think a lot of the pro-life movement has. We want, we want to categorize this in a biblical way that we're dealing with sin here. We're not dealing with these poor, ignorant people. We're dealing with sin. And there's sin all around us in the world. There's sin in their hearts. There's sin in the world. And, we, and all needs to be dealt with. All sin needs to be dealt with, whether it's murder, whether it's adultery, whatever the sin is, it needs to be dealt with. And thankfully, God has provided the way that it is dealt with. And the answer, whether it's fighting any form of sin, whether it's fighting abortion, the answer is the gospel. The answer is the preaching, the spreading of the gospel. The bottom line is people are evil and they want to sin. And that includes, I'm going to kill my baby if it's not what I want right now. Yeah, that's the facts. Romans 8 says, The mind that's set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the problem is the sinful heart of human beings. The answer then is not simply education and ultrasounds and things like that. Those things are fine, but they're, they're not actually dealing with the issue at its root. They're not dealing with sin. They're dealing with things up here. People, ultimately, they may suppress the truth that it's a baby. They may try to deny it, but they know it. The thing is, is that people nowadays especially are okay with saying, hey, it's a baby, but I have the right to take the baby's life because I'm the boss, like the woman said. <clears throat> so the gospel. Jesus came to deal with our sins. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to live a perfect life in obedience to the law, never sinning, to die on the cross to take the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And he rose again from the dead. 
the gospel that we are sinners, that we are guilty, that we deserve God's punishment in hell, but that Jesus came and took the punishment for us on the cross, that he kept the law for us that we can never keep, and that we simply trust in him, that we receive forgiveness, not by our obedience, which we don't have, but by trusting in Jesus instead, we put our faith in him, repent of our sins. That's the good news, the free gift of the gospel, forgiveness. But what we have, we have to remember, is the issue of being born again. Apart, besides just forgiving us of our sins, justifying us before God, which is of vitally importance and our only hope for entering heaven, he also makes us born again, right? He gives us new hearts. So how does the gospel deal with people who are considering abortion? They're, they're not Christians. They say, you know what? I just want to do my thing. I want to live my life. I'm going to, I'm going to have an abortion. I'm going to kill my baby. And you can't tell me not to. How does the gospel affect that for these pre-abortive mothers? All Christians, all who believe the gospel are born again. And then therefore what that results in is they have new desires to do what pleases the Lord. They have new hearts. Instead of living in rebellion like they used to, as we do by nature, God gives them a new heart and enables them to follow Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this great text which is very clear. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, we have these sinful hearts. Well, God answers that by giving us new ones, giving us new hearts, hearts that desire to obey him. Not because we think we can earn heaven by it, of course, but because God has given us salvation as a free gift and we walk in thankfulness to him and we obey him. He says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and, and my, obey my just decrees or my rules. You see, when God makes somebody born again, hey, they no longer desire to murder their children. Right? They have new desires, desires against what is evil and desires for what is right, what is according to God's law. He gives them a new heart with new desires. But what's, what's the way that God does this? He, he makes people born again. He converts people through preaching the gospel. Romans 10 tells us that when, how are people to believe unless they have heard? And how are they to hear unless somebody preaches? And how are they to preach unless somebody's sent to preach? And that's what we have here before us. The issue here to deal with abortion, as well as any sin that we see in our culture, is putting the gospel out there further. Because through the preaching of the gospel, God makes people born again. He gives them a new heart with new desires. People who are born again no longer have this innate, rebellious, sinful desire to kill their babies. The only thing that can change the human heart, which is evil, a heart that desires to murder, is for that heart to be changed by God. If people's hearts are changed, they no longer, going to want, no longer desire abortions like they do. See, pro-life groups that are not distinctively Christian and their strategies those groups that don't have the gospel, they're going to fail because ultrasounds don't change hearts. They claim that they do, but they don't. Ultrasounds can't change your heart. They may put in your face, look, it's a baby. And the woman can say, I know that. 
She could. She could say any of that. But I'm the boss. It's like the woman did in the article. A woman knowing she is pregnant with a baby doesn't change her heart, does it? There is nothing that can change an evil person's heart but the grace of God. And would you consider this too? You are, I'm sure you're well familiar in scripture about the instances of child sacrifice. These things that God repeatedly says, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. These people took their little newborns and they put it on these altars to these false gods and they burned them to death. They ask you, do these people know that this is a baby? Yes, obviously. It's their newborn baby. Did it stop them? No. The issue is not ignorance. The issue is they like to murder. It's hard for us to take, but it's the, it's the scriptural view of, of human beings by nature. We really are evil. And Jesus said, again, in our hearts are all kinds of evil, including murder. They're in our hearts. That's why people do these things. So the gospel deals with the people who are thinking about abortion. They're before their abortion. You bring the gospel to them. By the grace of God, they're born again. And they don't do it, right? They no longer desire to murder a child. But the gospel also is the answer for those who have had abortions. For those who have murdered their children, the grace of God extends to them because God forgives every sin of those who repent and believe the gospel, including the sin of abortion, including murderers. God's grace extends to murderers. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, in order for us to really deal with this issue, the thing is our mission is really no different. Abortion is not some sort of special thing, special category that takes some sort of different strategy. It's, it's really all, always the same, is that we're bringing the gospel to the world. We're preaching the gospel to people. Now, if people's sins are murder, we bring the gospel to them. If, they're, if they have murder in their hearts but haven't actually gone out and done it yet, we do that. We bring the gospel to them. Same thing with anything else, right? It's not different. We're dealing with sin. We're dealing with it. Now, we want to have some scriptural arguments for it, which I hope that this morning's message has been helpful to you, knowing what are the unborn, what is murder according to God, and showing that this is the only way to define that. But it's important that we know the gospel. The gospel is how we deal with these issues because the gospel is the means by which God changes human hearts and gives them a desire for him. And for those who, who have had abortions, those who are, in fact, guilty of the sin of murder, God receives them too. He receives them in Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive people of murder too. Okay? The gospel is the answer. And it's, it's, I, hope, I hope this is helpful that if you're not dealing with abortion from a distinctively Christian view, it's, it's, a, it's hopeless. It's hopeless in the, in the movement, but it's also hopeless for the people who are considering abortion or who have had abortion. People may feel a great sense of regret for abortion. That doesn't change the fact that they're guilty of it. But what that shows is that they need the gospel. They need forgiveness in Christ. Be, having an abortion makes you guilty of murder, but Jesus came to forgive those guilty people like us, big sinners. He says he came not for the righteous for those, for, for sinners. So, conclusion, what's the main point? What's the main point here? The abortion issue is something that as Christians, we have um, a unique, we have the 
answer to because we have a way to define it as evil. We have the way. We have a justified reason for believing that abortion is wrong. We're not neutral. We're Christians, right? We go to God's word. And I've given you dozens of scripture, probably way too many, but it, there's a lot in scripture about this issue. We know from scripture that the unborn are human beings. It's pretty obvious. It's also obvious from our observation as well. Two, we know what murder is from scripture. We know that God forbids it. So we can conclude from that, since the unborn are humans and people are intentionally killing them, that they're murdering these unborn babies. But we also need to know something that the world does not have, even the the secular pro-life movement does not have this, is the gospel as the answer. And this is where we have to stand our ground and be firm, that the gospel is how the abortion will be eradicated. It's the only way. Hearts will be changed only through the Holy Spirit um, making people born again and giving them a desire for obedience. And that's done through the means of gospel preaching. So we've got to get real good at preaching the gospel and actually doing it. So it's very important that we learn to spread the gospel, spread the gospel, be able to discuss this issue of abortion biblically, and call people to repentance and faith in Christ alone. And we may know people who have had abortions, or maybe we even know people who are considering that. The answer is to bring the gospel to them, bring, call them to repentance for these particular sins, and uh, let God do what he loves to do, which is save sinners. So, again, what I want to leave you with is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the great commission, going out, making disciples of the nations. This is how it's done. This is how it's done. The law, which says you shall not murder, God uses to convict people, and the gospel is what he uses as a means to give them a new heart. So you want to bring them, say, God says do not murder, abortion is murder, and then bring in the gospel that those who repent and those who trust in Jesus alone for their salvation, he forgives freely because his grace, he's merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us new life, making us born again. Or else we would be just like the rest of the world, um, hating one another and hated by others and living in the passions of our flesh and just doing whatever seems right to us, which would be evil as we know from your word that no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, become worthless. The mind that's still on the flesh is hostile towards you, cannot submit to your law by nature. We thank you for making us born again. We pray that we will not try to in, in, in use our own pragmatic strategies, but just stick to what you have called us to do, which is to make disciples of the nations by um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that that you've commanded. We thank you for your law. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that we'll use those the way you have called us to. We pray for your kingdom to grow through the gospel. We pray that you will use each and every one of us as faithful instruments in your hands to bring the gospel to those who are not saved. And we pray that abortion as well as every other sin. We pray for abortion to be eradicated from this country, from this world, that people would turn away from their sins and do your will on earth as it is done in heaven, and that you would be pleased to to grant repentance to the nations. And we ask these things for your sake. Amen.